Welcome to Oncopharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here at the supported sponsor of Oncopharm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy here at East Tennessee State University, where it is uh, the last uh, Thursday of October uh, 2021. Beautiful uh, foliage and fall weather. And we have, uh, you know, a lot of, I guess, a hodgepodge of updates to go through. So let's <clears throat> let's get right into it, uh, starting with uh, another adjuvant A approval. Uh, so last time we went through the updates, we talked about the adjuvant, then a cyclib approval uh, for, for breast cancer. Now we have an adjuvant approval for atezolizumab for non-small cell lung cancer. This is based on Empower 010. Why do they have a leading zero? Why not just Empower 10? Why Empower 010 or 010? It's just, I don't like that, atezolizumab people. All right, so Empower 010 enrolled more than 1,000 patients uh, with uh, non-small cell lung cancer, stage 1B to 3A. These are the folks that you would offer adjuvant chemo to. And if you go back and listen to our JBR10 uh, landmark study, you'll talk, you know, you'll hear that those 1B patients didn't benefit as much, you know, from your, your 2B and 3A patients and things like that. So anyway, patients with non-small cell lung cancer who had surgery, had it cut out, then had their cisplatin-based adjuvant chemo, uh, they're randomized to either a year of atezolizumab or placebo. <clears throat> now, that was the study. The approval is for uh, only stage 2 to 3A, so not the 1B folks, and only those who are PDL1 positive. The trial enrolled PDL1 positive and PDL1 negative. So uh, in this trial, half the patients were PDL1 positive. Uh, my guess is if you were trying to enroll a patient on that study, you probably tried to get a little bit more PDL1 positive folks. So uh, my guess is, at best, half of the non-small cell lung cancer, non-small cell lung cancer patient population um, who, who's eligible for adjuvant treatment would be, you know, candidates for adjuvant atezolizumab based on the PDL1 positive approval. Speaking of PDL1 positivity, this is a more than one percent expression of PDL1 on the tumor cells. Okay. <clears throat> PDL1 positivity is is kind of an overgeneralization. I've I've alluded to it on other podcasts how different different drug companies have different assays. Sure, uh, maybe that's okay. But we also are looking at, at different uh, locales, different cells expressing PDL1. So just to use the atezolizumab example, the approval for bladder cancer for those who are not candidates for cisplatin. If you can get cisplatin, you get cisplatin-based chemo with metastatic bladder cancer. But if you can't get cisplatin, then you could carboplatin. If you can't get carboplatin, then you could do a map, all right? Irregardless or regardless of PDL1 status. However, if you're not a candidate for cisplatin and you're gonna skip the carboplatin for atezolizumab, you have to have at least 5% staining of PDL1 on the immune cells in the tumor sample, all right? So immune cells in the bladder cancer uh, is what you're looking at uh, if you're ineligible for cisplatin. Here in non-small cell lung cancer adjuvant setting, it's greater than or equal to 1% PDL1 expression on the tumor cells from that, sa- from that sample that is resected. Now this approval is based on uh, disease-free survival, which is a surrogate marker for overall survival. Uh, this is presented, uh, I believe, at, uh, at ASCO uh, this year in June. I think it was ASCO, yeah. Um, we... We don't have, you know, long, we don't have a publication. We don't have long-term overall survival, which is what matters most. We don't know how many people are cured, which is what I think our goal should be uh, for, for adjuvant treatment. Uh, and in theory, 
after you've removed the cancer that you can identify with surgery and you've given your adjuvant chemo for micrometastatic disease that maybe is spread elsewhere, this is, a, this is when the tumor burden should be the lowest. This is, in theory, is when immunotherapy should be the most effective at helping to cure folks. Now, a year <clears throat> maybe is more than you need. Um, maybe it's three months, maybe it's six months. Um, and I say that because when you look at that, the Kaplan-Meier curve, um, that was presented at ASCO in that stage two to three A for the PDL one above or equal to one percent. You know the Kaplan-Meier curves are in parallel for almost all of the time followed, except for that period between three and six months. And three months, I'm sure, in the protocols when they get their first post-treatment uh, scans. All right. So uh, you know a whole bunch of people progress because their disease <clears throat> was maybe metastatic at. Uh, you know, at baseline and, and wasn't caught in the pre-screening process and there was a delay from screening and workup to starting treatment. Uh, so, you know, about 15% of people progress right away within the first three months, it looks like, on this trial. And then after you get rid of those people who have progressed, there doesn't seem to be uh, any benefit. The benefit you already got in those first three months is the benefit that's maintained if you look at the slope of those two curves. Um, so, I, you know, a year maybe is more than, than you would need. Of course, we don't have, atizolizumab is not going to do three months versus a year now that they got a year approval. They may do one year versus two years, but they're not going to study less after this is approved. Now, this is for PDL1 uh, greater than equal to 1%. The higher the expression, it looks like, the greater the benefit in terms of disease-free survival, which we hope translates into um, probably maybe not as sizable a benefit in overall survival overall survival, but at least some benefit in overall survival. So here's the hazard ratio for the whole PD-L1 positive population, uh, 2B to 3A. A hazard ratio is, is 0.66, comes from 0.5 to 0.88. You know, okay, reasonable. Uh, if you just look at those uh, who are 1 to 49%, the hazard ratio is 0.87, close to 1, and that confidence interval runs from 0.6 to 1.26. So pretty wide confidence interval there. Uh, the hazard ratio for those with PDL1 in the tumor cells above or equal to 50% is a hazard ratio of 0.43, all the way less than 0.5, and that confidence interval is 0.27 to 0.68. So most benefit seems to be derived in the PDL1 expression above 50%. Uh, longer FOB, we'll see if, if there is, uh, you know, benefit in those above 1%. The approval says if you're 1% or above, you can get adjuvant atezolizumab. Um, you know, we'll have to wait to see, to know the answer uh, to that, but it is FDA approved and physicians are going to start uh, using this and you kind of have to uh, look ahead and hope that this sizable, uh, you know, uh, and, you know, disease-free survival benefit in everyone above PDL one one percent holds uh, and, and translates to an overall survival, but we will, we will see. Um, speaking of we will see, uh, I like to come back to these, these long-term follow-up studies. So we have long-term follow-up from SOLO1. This is looking at maintenance of laparib in uh, newly diagnosed ovarian cancer patients uh, with a BRCA mutation after they get uh, their, their platinum-based chemo. Uh, so olaparib was approved in December of 2018, uh, actually December 19th. So the pod on this approval probably was early January of 2019, if I had to guess. You know, we're coming up on the four-year anniversary of Oncopharm pod. Pause for applause. Um, so this is the five-year follow-up uh, looking at this. And, you know, we know, you know, there's a sizable progression-free survival benefit here um, in maintenance for, for a lab rib. I, I will say this, five-year follow-up, if your overall survival date is still immature, it doesn't make me think there's a huge benefit in overall survival for your study. 
This is a median fall of four and a half to five years in each group. 27% of people had died in a lap rib, which is lower than the 40% who died in placebo. So it is trending towards an overall survival benefit. The reason I want to bring this up, and this is a lap rib for two years as maintenance. Um, you know, we have seen there's a clear safety signal of myelodysplastic syndrome and AML uh, with long-term uh, PARP inhibitor use, like Olaparib. Uh, there is, I'll have to tweet this out, there's a study done by some, uh, the group who works with Vinay Prasad who does the Plenary Session podcast, which is only a Twitter account, this podcast account uh, follows, uh, and they looked at some work of some imbalance in censoring between arms, and, and they do a nice job kind of hypothesizing why there may be imbalances. There are some significant imbalances in censoring in this arm. So censoring means we stop following that person in the Katmeyer curve. Like every time if you look at a progression-free survival curve, which is what they're talking about in this particular study, the line goes down, somebody progressed, they died, or they were censored, meaning they haven't, they haven't gone for three years yet, so at two and a half years we censor them because that's where they are in their treatment. Or they're lost to follow-up, or they, they come off study or something like that. Uh, and, and one of the things they hypothesize is that if you have a lot of censoring late in a study in the experimental arm, you might miss some long-term toxicity. Now, this is a study that's randomized two to one, so you know, for every one person on placebo, two people are on Olaparib. So you would expect uh, the censoring to be twice as common in the Olaparib arm uh, as the, the placebo arm. They should be proportional. What you see is censoring that is four times as common in the Olaparib arm as the study goes on than in the placebo arm, which would tell me that you might not be able to pick up uh, an increase in MDS or AML safety signal in these patients. And I say that because that's like the last line of their their abstract is no additional case of myelodysplastic syndrome or AML were reported since primary data cutoff, which means there's some follow-up that is not contained in this analysis. So, um, you know, if they do get, uh, if people on a lap or maintenance in this setting do get MDS or they do get AML, they're probably going to have a poor outcome and that, that, that will show up in the overall survival analysis, uh, which uh, I guess we'll wait for the six, seven, eight year follow-up for that. Um, although good news, I mean, these patients are still doing well, um, recommended whether they got a laparib or not um, in this study. A little bit better uh, with a laparib, it appears still. Um, so, still waiting though for those overall survival uh, data. Uh, all right, now on to some, some, some smaller potatoes. Uh, these are all published in Lancet Oncology in the last couple weeks. So, the CONFIRM trial. This is nivolumab versus placebo. Uh, in malignant uh, mesothelioma in patients after they receive platinum plus pimetrexed, you know, you know, there's a, a, a there's an efficacy signal for overall survival here with nivolumab, something a lot of folks maybe thought was coming. So you see those mesothelioma patients after platinum pimetrexed, uh, nivolumab represents a good option. Moving on to uh, to metastatic biliary tract cancer. So in this space, you know, we have a pretty clear first line chemotherapy regimen in gemcitabine and cisplatin. After gemcis in metastatic cholangiocarcinoma or gallbladder, or whatever biliary tract cancer, we don't have uh, we don't have a preferred second line option. You could do you could do a folfox, you could do a capox, you could do do a gem cape, you could do a gem ox, you could do single agent of either of those, and we don't have really good head to head comparisons. Uh, so enter Nifty, which has an adequate trial design of liposomal irinotecan plus. 5-FU leucovorin versus 5-FU leucovorin uh, and shows a, a progression-free survival benefit uh, uh, favoring um, um, uh, liposomal rotigan 5-FU. Uh, you know, and, and that's, it, 
advanced biliary tract cancer is not a good disease. These folks don't do well. If, if there's really going to be impact from a drug and overall survival, you should be able to see it. Um, but, you know, this will probably, in our favorite guidelines, become, you know, uh, you know, maybe the preferred 2A recommendation because we do have a head-to-head comparison recently uh, here uh, in this, uh, this study. This is a phase 2B study, so it's still not a phase 3 study. So we probably would not be able to see overall survival in, with that, uh, without a phase 3 study. Um, at times on this podcast, we've talked about um, the role of cyclin-dependent uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, in metastatic breast cancer and how some of the studies with crossover and differences in pre- versus post-menopausalness, how they, they haven't consistently shown an overall survival benefit in that setting, although they very a very obvious uh, impact on the progression of the disease. So FDA recently published uh, a composite study, basically, sort of like a meta-analysis, where they com- a pooled analysis, they call it, of the CDK4-6 inhibitors, suggesting overall survival benefit. Uh, not anything newsworthy there, so why don't I talk about it? I don't know. Just to point out that FDA does these things, and that, that does go into maybe a decision about why uh, a drug that shows a PFS benefit and doesn't show an overall survival benefit, uh, if you see consistent benefits by class, the FDA may use that uh, in their uh, in their analysis to keep a drug on market. And then finally, I want to end with, uh, as, a, as an oncology pharmacist, a really interesting paper um, in ESMO Open, and this is from uh, some folks in, uh, this is in Italy, and they are looking at a, a potential drug-drug interaction between palbociclib and proton pump inhibitors. And you might think, oh, PPIs interact with everything. And when it comes to like dietary nutrients, that seems to be the case. But when it comes to drugs, that's not the case. But a lot of PPIs, um, because they raise the pH from acidic to basic, they're gonna impair the absorption, especially for drugs that are dependent on gastric absorption and are acidic drugs, all right? The way the FDA looks for this potential interaction is they, they have people take PPIs and they give them one dose of the TKI or the CDK4-6 inhibitor or whatever the oral drug is. So you take a PPI for a week uh, and, then, and then you take the drug. And we compare, not we, but they, the people, you know, them, they're out there. They compare the, the absorption and the area under the curve, the total uh, bioavailability and the Cmax of the drug with a PPI and people with PPIs versus people without PPIs. And if it's a significant decrease in absorption, they'll say, you know, don't do that. Don't take it with a PPI or an H2 blocker or, you know, uh, um, uh, calcium carbonate tums and acid sort of thing. All right, so that's a one-dose study. Um, there are examples uh, for, with the drug nilotinib, for example, where there's a clear detriment in absorption with nilotinib. There are also at least two you know, case control or, or retrospective cohort studies that look at outcomes of people taking nilotinib with PPIs without, not showing any difference necessarily in, in CML outcomes. Now, we do really well in treating CML with TKIs. So we, maybe if you have a little bit of reduced absorption for nilotinib, maybe it doesn't make a difference in CML efficacy. Uh, or maybe just as you take nilotinib twice a day for weeks, you, you get enough in there. Uh, and, and you... you you, you know, the one-time dose doesn't apply. Uh, the one-time reduced to bioavailability doesn't apply to continual dosing. We don't know. Now back to this study with palbociclib and PPIs. So palbociclib has its bioavailability reduced by a PPI, single dose, by, uh, by 62% if you take it on an empty stomach. 
but that bioavailability reduction is only reduced by 13% if you take it with food. So one of the things we tell people taking palmocyclob is you should take it with food. Uh, that way, if you are taking a PPI, uh, it overcomes that, that bioavailability. Okay? So this is a small study, about 100 patients, and, and they're basically looking back at people on palbocyclob, metastatic breast cancer, uh, did they use PPIs or not? 56 in each arm, and, and what they show is a, si in addition to endocrine therapy, is a sizable progression-free survival variance between those um, who were not taking PPIs and those that were. There could be many reasons for this imbalance. Uh, the The... I guess the exciting one would be that there is a big drug-drug interaction with PPIs and palbocyclin. Could be. Uh, it may be that uh, even though a single-dose study suggests that that is not the case, a 13% decrease in error in the curve probably should not affect the efficacy of a drug. Although 13% is, you know, if I asked my student, if I took your grade from a 95% down by 13% from an A to a B, they wouldn't be happy, for example. So 13% may mean something for a narrow therapeutic index drug like, like oral chemotherapy or oral antineoplastics. Okay. The other thing could be patients are not taking it with food, and when they're taking PPIs, they don't take it with food. So they do have that drug-drug interaction without taking it with food. So uh, hopefully, if your oral chemo process allows for it, you're, you're assessing adherence to palbocyclib with food in your notes. So you could go back and do a retrospective analysis looking at this with a larger sample size to see if there's something here or not. Um, so what do I say about retrospective studies like this? Eh. Uh, interesting, okay. Uh, I'm not going to change my practice. I'm still going to tell people to take palba with food if they have a PPI. I'll still tell them to take it with food. It, you know, it's also possible, and they try to adjust for potential confounders, but it's also, you know, people who take PPIs maybe are a little bit sicker than people who don't take PPIs, and they have other comorbidities and things like that, so there certainly could be some other reasons for that, and if you look at the the baseline demographics here, it certainly looks like the people taking PPIs have a little bit lower ECOG, you know, a numerically lower percentage of ECOG zero uh, and some things like that. Uh, so it's interesting. And the reason I bring it up is it's out there, it's published, and it is a great potential pharmacy residency project to look at if you have a sizable population of patients uh, taking palbocyclib, which uh, there's a sizable population of patients with metastatic breast cancer and with CDK4-6 inhibitors uh, moving up to the, f the first line in that setting. There's probably a lot of those folks, if you've got a big oncology practice, you'll be able to do a pretty similar study and you've already got a methods roadmap, roadmap to follow uh, from, this, from this study. So that uh, is the, the, the hodgepodge, the smorgasbord of oncology pharmacy updates for uh, for today. Uh, thank you all uh, for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at PharmDTube. You can follow the podcast on both Twitter and Instagram at OncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Mm -hmm.